Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante. And whether you're a first time listener or a long time listener, I want to thank you for choosing to spend your time with me and our guests here on Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, now more than ever in this turbulent time, it's important to share and spread our message of freedom and fulfillment around the globe. So if you get value from this podcast, I have a favor to ask. If you could go wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a positive rating and review, that helps us carry our message further around the globe. And if you wouldn't mind, Post a link to this podcast on your Facebook page. Share it on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, wherever you're at on social media. I want to thank you for helping us take our message to those people around the globe who truly need it. And I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. Thank you. The United States is the only nation on the face of the earth founded on a creed. All right, that's right. All men are created equal is that creed. Do we believe it anymore? What does the word freedom mean to you? Only you can define it in your life and only you can decide to build the life of freedom and fulfillment you deserve. This is Freedom Mindset Radio. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante, and we're grateful you're here. And hello, everybody. Welcome to the Freedom Media Network. We have another incredible interview today. Today, we're going to be talking with the authors of a new book that I told them it scared the hell out of me when I finished it last night. It's called Cooperation and Coercion. They didn't realize that they were writing a book exactly for these times. When we come back, Anthony Davies and James R. Harrigan. Well, Anthony, James, thank you so much for coming on the Freedom Media Network. As I said, when you started writing this book, I'm sure you started it a year or two ago. Maybe you didn't have in mind that we would be living out the case study of your book. This, this is going to have to be, well, you could write a whole nother book on this. This is going to have to ne- be the next chapter, right? Yeah, it's stranger than that. We started about six years ago. Wow. It just happened by coincidence to come out as all this is going on. Well, for our listeners, and, and by the way, thank you. As you as you join us, whether you're joining us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, or YouTube, jump in, share your name, your city, your state, your town, your country, your continent, wherever in the world you're joining us from, share your questions, your comments. Uh, by the way, Anthony Davies is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University. And James R. Harrigan is the F.A. Hayek Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education and Director of Education at the Freedom Center at the University of Arizona. We love the word freedom here, so thank thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, the number one question, I usually wear a shirt that says, what does freedom mean to you? Today, I, I thought it was appropriate to wear my shirt that says, fight conformity. Um, but that word freedom, and you talk about freedom, and you talk about different uh, countries and levels of freedom in the country as it relates to the, whether they're a, a society, a government based on cooperation or more on coercion. But the word freedom for each of you, what does that word mean to each of you? James, this is your area. I'm going to let you go first. <laughs> for, for me, it's extraordinarily simple. It's it's the absence of uh, governmental coercion. It, it's just that easy. Well, that's interesting because as an economist, I'd be a little more subtle. And freedom is is the abs is the appropriate use of government coercion. And this well, is I, what we. I, 
I've this never is known what we... to be subtle. <laughs> yeah, that, does, that doesn't seem right to me. But this okay. is what this is the point we try to make in the book is that it's not it's not a story of government bad and and markets or individuals good, but rather it's a story of using the right tools in the right places and you know freedom loving people everywhere. One of the things that will tell you it's very important is property rights. Well, government is a tool we part for the purpose of helping to establish and protect property rights. So there is a role for coercion. It's just a very limited and specific role. Yeah, no, I want to make clear that I'm not an anarchist, but I do think that government has its place, but it has its place. And to the extent that I'm dealing with government, I'm clearly not free. To the extent that government is not uh, sitting atop me, I, I am free. So perhaps my, my position is a little more nuanced than you believe, Anthony. It's interesting you bring up anarchy because there's a, there's a lot of people who, who don't draw lines between any ism or, you know, anarchy and libertarianism or, or whatever. To them, it's the same thing. And it's funny now with everyone homeschooling. We've homeschooled. Uh, our oldest is 13. Our youngest is six. We've homeschooled throughout. And so people come to us for, hey, what do you do? What do you do? And we unschool. And the way I describe is self-education and allowing the kids to say, and someone on Facebook says, that sounds like anarchy to me. But really, it's all about that level of cooperation that we allow. Is there some coercion? Yeah, if my kid wants to sit around all day and just stare at the bottom of the couch, right? We, we get them moving. But, but it's that fine line that a lot of people default directly to well, you're just an anarchist, right? Uh, just like we've do we 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 default, funnily enough, to fascism, where fascism may not occur. Uh, which before this crisis, it's interesting the people denouncing fascism who are, who who now may be in fact uh, demanding it. Um, but but that freedom, an interesting piece is when you talk about government and coercion and cooperation, and you talk about inalienable rights, is freedom something that can be given to us and thus taken away or is freedom our default state when we're born and then it's a matter of how much coercion and restrictions there are on our freedom because if you're born with freedom right like victor frankel writes in man's search for meaning his freedom was inside his head no matter what the nazis did no matter what the you know the, the, the evil happened around him I mean, look, freedom is your birthright as a human being. Whether you're born with it or not is a separate and distinct question. The vast majority of human beings who have lived on, on this planet have not been born in a condition of freedom. That doesn't mean it wasn't their birthright, but they, they weren't born in that condition. So freedom is something that has to be earned absolutely by collections of people over over time and that's much much harder than it first seems and it, and you see now you, you you make reference to how we're perhaps drifting i would make this the case that we're running towards fascism um you see how fast you can lose it right it, it may take millennia to earn it and it can be lost in a generation so I think that's the precipice we find ourselves on right now, that we, we have this birthright and we as Americans have been fortunate enough to have been able to experience our right to freedom. And nonetheless, when the chips are down, when things look difficult, we go running and it's become, I think, quite obvious in, into the arms of those who would tell us what to do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you see this lately in the last couple of days with the uh, the snitching regime that is that is manifesting in state after state after state. Uh, my own city, Tucson, Arizona, put up a web form a couple of days ago where you could turn your neighbors in for offenses that they may be committing in terms of social distancing. And the good city of Tucson, and it is a good city, um, the good city of Tucson has left open an option for for you to turn these people in anonymously, which just reeks of the Stasi, right? This is how this is how business was conducted in East Germany. So, yeah, freedom is your birthright, but you have to actually want it. And you have to earn it. You have to deserve it. I, I read an article once that the new, or recently, yesterday, <laughs> that the new heinous crime in London is going out for a second jog. Yeah, you know, because right. they, yeah. they, they allow one jog per day. Um, and by the way, for everyone joining us here, Anthony Davies, James Harrigan, uh, the book is Cooperate. Oh, you can't see it. Cooperation and Co- Coercion. I love the the subtitle, which, by the way, exactly what you're talking about when you talk about the snitches, how busybodies became busy bullies and what that means for economics and politics. And, and what we're seeing now, I mean, you, you talk about in the book a variety of topics, non-pandemic, right? But whether it's gun control, whether it's debt, whether it's the war on now, in certain wars. And when you declare war on something, that means a number of things that are going to come with it. Uh, The weight of government, more coercion, heavy spending. And you talk about the money that's been spent on all wars to date. And then you put that in the context. And then later in the debt chapter, you talk about, I think you give four or five examples to explain what I think Twenty-two trillion dollars looks like, and it's like the drops of 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 you know water drops in a pool, blades of gla- grass, and how many football fields. But you look at how much we've spent on all the wars to date, and right now, our president has said this is a war. We're on war footing, and you look at what we spent on a single afternoon a week or two ago, which uh, trumps, no pun intended, um, any amount of money right we've spent on wars to date. And there's, you got to add context to big numbers, right? When we talk about numbers, I mean, you do that in the book very well. Yeah, we, we have the problem now of, of the numbers being so large that it's difficult to come up with an analogy. You almost need an analogy for the analogy because the analogy itself is so large, it's, it's not believable. But this is a problem we've been headed to for the past century. And it comes, it didn't come all at once. It comes in little steps of somebody saying, well, wouldn't it be a good idea if we all did X? You know, you can go all the way back to, we should all stop drinking alcohol, for example. And and here you have government and people in government, some of whom are quite good people. I don't mean to paint them all with a bad brush, but the nature of the beast is one of ever increasing power. And if you turn to the government and say, here's a problem, why don't you fix it? The government's going to grow in size in the attempt to fix that. And when the problem is gone, the government won't shrink back. It will stay at that large amount. And we've seen this just in the past few decades. The annual uh, federal debt jumped something like, I'm making up the number, but it's approximately correct, 60 to 80 percent per year, pre versus post 9-11. And that was, of course, in response to 
to 9-11, the terrorist situation, but it never shrank back. Instead, it stayed at that high level until we get to 2008 and the high housing crisis. And again, we get another 50% increase in deficits. And they never shrank back. They stay at that high level. And again, we have this now with the coronavirus, this increase of, good God, the deficit this year is going to be 3 to $4 trillion. It's not going to go, go back down. It's going to stay that size because the nature of government is one of power and control. When we release it, we give it a little bit of extra elbow room. It's going to fill that elbow room and never go back to where it was. You open the book by talking about knowledge and the knowledge problem. And when we make decisions, uh, not all of them are going to be exact, right? Economics isn't an exact science because human behavior is involved. And you look at epidemiology and your the policies you're making based on epidemiology, you may be a math whiz, but if it's based on models that change every other day, the math doesn't much matter, right? And, I, and math alone does not necessarily equal critical thinking, right? I can right. look at numbers and, you know, not take into account, say, in New Orleans, where lifestyles are different and health is different. I can't, you know, it, it might be different than in Illinois or somewhere else. So when you look at critical thinking and you look at policies that we can have debates over, um, and by the way, debate the way it used to be, right? Not, I don't agree with you, therefore you're evil, shut up. I'm going to tune you out. But actually, as Matt really said, Matthew really says, where ideas have sex, right? And, and regardless of if you, if you agree with one another, when you look at the precedents we're setting now, and we can argue over the size of government and the force of government right now in relation to an, a, a pandemic and a virus, that if you line up 100 people thus far, we can kind of statistically say, now someone of course will say, well, what about this country? What about this state? But overall, say two to three people of those hundred are going to die or be hospitalized. We can kind of guess who those two to three people are, age, underlying health conditions, right? So it's easier maybe to have a debate over the size of government over something of which 97 or 98 people, 98% of the people are going to survive, right? But then you stretch it out. Where does the debate, I mean, principles are principles, but when you're talking about the size of government in times of crisis, does it change if the pandemic is hitting, is indiscriminate and hitting 50% of the people or 60% of the people? Is it is it all academic as long as it's a, a small segment of society? Does that make sense? Yeah, this is this is the question that, that generations have dealt with in this country and our forefathers warned us about that it's it's so easy to give up some of your freedom in exchange for a little security or perceived security and that's what we're doing here and you talk about the two three percent number and the fact is we simply don't have enough information um it is the case as i understand it i'm not an epidemiologist but i do deal with data all the time i understand that something like two to three percent of the people who show up sick enough to get tested ultimately die of coronavirus but that's very different from saying that two to three percent of the population will. The fact is, we don't know how many people will in the population because we haven't done randomized testing. It's like I tell people, it's, it's like trying to figure out what fraction of women are pregnant by taking a poll in a maternity ward. That's the kind of data we're dealing with. <laughs>
that, that's probably the best analogy I'm going to hear all day. But if, if you think about it and you take a look at the modeling right, that, that's been done so far, it's been fantastically wrong, almost universally. And I, I would expect as much, right, because the models don't have full information flowing into them and they're going to get better over time. Will they ever be correct? Maybe, but that's going to take quite some time to get there. But here's the thing. We're making policy at this point on a very faulty set of models that only take into account one thing, which is how many people are getting sick. Um, but when you realize that all policies are trade-offs, right, that we're going to give up a bunch of things in column A to get a bunch of things in column B, really you need somebody who's able to take a step back and look at all the variables in play. Okay, fine. We've got a number of people who are going to get sick. Let's shut the country down. Now we've got a number of people who are going to be bankrupt. A, a percentage of that group will become despondent. A percentage of that group will become suicidal. Hmm. We're, we're not saving all the lives. We're switching them from category to category. And because we only pay attention to one category, that one that could be seen immediately right now, we're, we're neglecting definitionally all the other ones. And that's where we're going to have problems. Um, will the economy ever fully re rebound from this sort of thing? You're going to get a couple of different answers depending on what we do next. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody's got a particularly clear notion of what's really going on. This is, in short, the knowledge problem that Ant and I talk about in chapter one of the book. No one person ever has enough information to rule well. And and you have to be humble enough to admit that. Hmm. And if you don't admit that, you're admitting all kinds of disaster. And and on that note, I, when you talk about humble, I've seen the growth of very arrogant people who might be math whizzes who are doing math based on a spreadsheet that's based on incomplete data. But they're they're sure of their math, and their math is correct. The problem is. You know, like you said, based on a maternity ward of all, I mean, that, and you're determining that. But I've also see, seen this default to, you talk about this in the book, right? That our hope that someday in the debt chapter, we're careening toward, well, when you wrote the book, we were careening toward it. Now we might be in it. I mean, because, well, we'll, we'll get to the debt issues in, in a little bit, but you talk about that, that maybe in the back of our heads, we, someone will be elected to save us. There will be angels that will be put into Washington, D.C. and our state governments, and they will come down on high and they will figure it out somehow. But a clear theme throughout your book is that everyone acts in their own self-interest. Even the people, and, and, and quite, quite, quite often, most times the people who are vehemently saying, I'm acting in your interest, right? Meaning the politicians. They want to get reelected and they act accordingly. I'm seeing a lot of in this time of crisis, and that happens in every time of crisis, defer to expert X. That person is an epidemiologist. He's been around for 30 years. He knows what he's doing. But then you look and you see four, five, six. I mean, it's, it's like in economics, right? You guys can put something out and say this. And then you have an economist on the other side coming out and saying something completely different. 
in a, in a society where we're conditioned to be in a compliance model of saying, trust the experts. But if you line up five experts, they all have different answers. Right. How do you make policy in a society like that? Yeah, well, it gets even worse than what you're describing because, because the media has an incentive of all the experts to grab the one who is most controversial and to put that person out there. Because remember, what's the media doing? They're selling advertising space. And to sell advertising space, they need your attention. And how can they get your attention? By putting things up on the news that are scary or outrageous. And so you'll tend, not always, but on average, to have the media focusing on the more outlandish predictions. And then you have, on the other hand, the politicians who, whose incentive is to appear to be doing something. Now, the something that they're doing doesn't have to be efficacious because they can always later, when the thing doesn't work, point to something else. Well, my policy didn't work because people didn't keep their social distance. Or it did work, and it turns out it only worked because people kept their social distance, right? The politician can look backward and justify whatever he's doing, but at the moment, he has to appear to be doing something. And those two forces will feed on each other. And what can you almost always guarantee? A politician will come to the table and say, well, imagine how bad things would have been if we didn't do this terrible thing that we just did. So there, there's there's never a coming to account for, mm -hmm. for people who behave this way. And oddly enough, I mean, people who, who read from the American founding know that James Madison had this covered in The Federalist, right? Angels aren't always going to be available to govern us. Um, meaning to say that they're never going to be available to, to govern us. And there's an entire branch of economics, public choice economics, that starts exactly with that Madisonian perspective. Right? So there are groups of people out there who are well aware that this is not the way to go. But when the people get spooked, when they're frightened, it sure does sound good when somebody walks up to a podium and says, I know just what to do. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and depending on how you feel about the person at the podium, you're going to automatically agree or you're automatically going to disagree based on your politics right. of, of that person. Right. I, I wonder what would have happened under the present circumstances had Donald Trump run as a Democrat, which was immensely plausible. Most of his life, he was a Democrat. Um, would all the Democrats now be lining up behind him? And I suspect the answer is sadly yes. Even though he did the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> when you when you talk about cooperation and coercion and you use the, you talk about smoking, but an example of smoking, right? Like, I don't care if you smoke, but just don't blow it in my face. That's when you're an aggressor and that's when you cross the line. Um, but if you take that and keep going out and out and out and out, well, you smoke, therefore you're contributing to increased healthcare costs and you're on Medicare and all that. Translate that to now and the snitching because people's argument is I see you out in a park. Therefore, it's not just about personal responsibility. It's you're in the park. You just walked by someone three feet, six feet, whatever it is today and you are now endangering my life. Therefore, it's perfectly reasonable within, you're, you're violating, in, in my mind, right, or in the, in the person's mind, you're violating cooperation. 
You've you've taken your per personal responsibility. You went on spring break. You did all these things, and now you violated the sense the social contract of cooperation. Therefore, I have to resort to coercion. What would you say to that? Yeah. Well, well, notice what's going on here. <clears throat> the snitch just assumes that he or she has all of the relevant information. And if I see somebody out walking when they shouldn't be, it must be in my mind, because this person just doesn't care. And now all of a sudden I feel all self-righteous and I'm going to report this person. What I don't know is that that person may be out of medication for one of their children is going to the pharmacy to pick it up, right? Or, or they've got an emergency call from a neighbor is going to help. The, we go back to the knowledge problem. The snitch in attempting to enforce his or her uh, opinion, um, judgment on this person simply doesn't have enough information. Now, is that to say that everybody who's out there walking is uh, is going about their business responsibly? No, it doesn't. But largely speaking, the the quality of the people out there is the same as the quality of the snitch. If the snitch cares about others, the chances are very good that that person out there also cares about others and has a, on average, a very good reason for being there. The snitch has no idea. The snitch just is going to feel self-righteous about it, turning the person in. Yeah, there's a, a lot of things that go on in my head when I decide what to do, um, some of which even I don't fully appreciate or understand, right? So <laughs> if, if we're going to be honest about that, and I'm being very honest about that, if we're going to be honest about that, we have to take a look at the bigger picture and ask what information anybody has beyond that which I have of my own situation. And the answer to that question is always going to be far, far less. Everybody else has far less of an understanding of what I need than I do. And I might need on some level, some psychological level, to get out of the house. After a month of being locked up inside the house, I might need to get out. And frankly, that's none of anybody's business but me. Um, and I think we've gotten away from telling people to mind their own damn business. I don't know why that's happened, but it absolutely has happened. And I think a little bit of that might go a long way in a situation like this. But, Kurt, I want to get back to that thing you said right at the end. You, you, you said that we have a social contract. And, of course, as a political philosophy guy, my backbone goes straight up when I hear that kind of thing. Because, let's be honest, I was never party to a contract. Right? There's no contract here. There's just life here. I was born into it. I find myself here. But I didn't agree to follow any specific set of rules at the moment I joined civil society. Right? Those rules are wide open. We can decide them as we go, but we decide them at our own peril. Right. There are certain things that if we decide, and Ant was talking about these things before with the government getting bigger, the ratchet effect, right? It only gets bigger. It never gets smaller. Well, we can decide very poorly, and I think we are deciding very poorly right now when we empower people to snitch on their neighbors. Um, it's going to be a long time before we can come back from that, if we can ever come back from that, right? Because that tells us something about our fellow citizens, and I'm not going to forget that. They thought they knew so well what my life should be that they unloosed the power of government on me to conform with their wishes. Mind your own damn business. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante and I wanna thank you for being a loyal listener to Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, in this chaotic time of coronavirus chaos, 
It's so important for people to have a process to define, create, and live their lives of freedom and fulfillment. I lay out just that process in my Amazon bestseller, Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. And in light of this turbulent time, I've dropped the Kindle price of my book to $4.50. That's a more than $2 drop in price. I do this because I truly believe that this is a process that will help those who need freedom and fulfillment now. Perhaps it's you. Perhaps you have spent the past five years, 10 years, 15 years trading away your freedom and fulfillment for a false sense of security and a toxic job and a lifestyle that doesn't fulfill you. And now you're realizing that security was an illusion and you want your freedom now. Go to fivepillarsoffreedom.com right now. There, you can get chapter one of my book absolutely free, and there's a link to purchase the book. As I said, we have dropped the price to $4.50 for the Kindle version of my book. I know the five pillars of the freedom lifestyle will help you define, create, and start living your freedom lifestyle now. Thanks again for being a listener. I wish you a day, a week, a year of freedom and abundance. And it's, it's interesting, right? Because if you play it out, and, and we've seen this, I believe, in the UK, I think there was a, a professor or, or, or a director or bureaucrat somewhere who talked about, and it's been talked about, monitoring with the National Health Service, right? So I am my brother's keeper has been institutionalized, right, in, in the health service of, well, if you're leading an unhealthy lifestyle, I have a right to regulate that because we're all paying into the health service. So if you are someone who reports someone for being in a park at this time, then be careful for what you wish for, right? Because if your fear is that that person not only is going to get sick, but endanger you by getting sick and overcrowding a hospital, which is what people are talking about. Well, then shouldn't I have a right to come in, look inside your refrigerator and find out, are you eating an inflammatory diet, tons of sugar, drinking yourself? Because if you have a heart attack, you're contributing to it, right? But people, I guess that's the critical thinking I'm talking about, creative thinking, long-term thinking of, well, Tony Fauci knows better, so trust him. Um, uh, I, what, I don't know how you pronounce his last name. Ioannidis, you know what I'm talking about? The epidemiologist who wrote a piece in Stat that said, we have faulty data. And, he, and people said, well, he's mathematically illiterate. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, two weeks later, kind of looks like he does know what he's talking about, right? But we default to that, to the angels. And when you look back, you know, supposedly this is the era of big data. And data has made us so far technologically advanced than any time in history. And we have this data and data is going to save us and data is going to improve our quality of life. At the same time, we have the democratization of thought and speech and everything, which is good, but social media. And you look back, granted, different society, well, societies don't have values, people have values. But when you look back in time and you look at World War I, 1917, 1918, Spanish flu, and we fought World War I, Woodrow Wilson never addressed the country, from what I see, uh, on the Spanish flu. It's killing people. What would, it, what would have been different if we had had social media and uh, 24-7 news and 5 o'clock daily press conferences? So is the knowledge problem, even as we get more knowledge in the way of data, which maybe isn't actually true, 
does that run up against the democratization of noise coming into our heads, if that makes sense? Yeah, I, I would imagine the, the root problem here isn't isn't the data, but as you identified, it's it's social media or something like it. The ability to to get information out uh, at the speed of light to to millions of people, and it becomes very easy then. I guess when you accompany it with all of this data, for someone to point to a bunch of data, draw the wrong conclusion, and immediately have a million people up in arms about this thing that's completely wrong. Right. There's, I think, a couple of quick examples, right? When, when you realize that there is a flat earth society and they're able to communicate with one another and band together, uh, I, I'm not going out on a limb here. These people are morons. I mean, if you think the earth is flat, I, we've, we've, I don't think there's anything that we can tell you that that would be reasonable, right? And you can go right down the line from there. The anti-vaxxers, all kinds of people who are evidence resistance, resistant. Um, and, you know, sooner or later, you get to that 50-50 level where it's, where it's open question territory. And it's very hard to draw clear lines here. I, I can point to the flat earthers, of course, and say, here's the outer limit. Um, but look at, look at how they're able to communicate with one another and band together. And if that silly example is laughable. Well, the white supremacist example isn't because they're able to do exactly the same thing. And uh, you, know, you start to see where social pressure not to be foolish is dissipating over time as these people find each other and congregate in their virtual spaces. And, and it's a problem we're going to face for a very long time. And I would say the answer here is not to curtail the speech that somehow social media is bad, we should shut it down. The answer is actually an obligation on the listener's parts to think critically about what it is you're hearing, to think about the incentives involved in bringing that piece of news to you before you start wigging out about it. Right. John Stuart Mill was, was completely right about the nature of speech and how it ought to be free, completely in every instance, right? Because I'm better off if I know what the white supremacists are up to and what they're thinking and what they're planning. And the more public they are, the more I know that. But they'll only be in the public space if they're allowed to be, right? Uh, the, so on that note, and critical thinking and empowering listeners and empowering people, I worked in D.C. for several years, worked in politics for a long time and, and policy. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, I was Wesley Mooch for a while, right? And Atlas Shrugged. I was the guy. And I, I sat in meetings, and I'll never forget the one meeting I sat in with a bunch of food industry lobbyists who divvied up who was going to write various parts of the food pyramid, right? And we're told it's science. Um, and the amount of additional things I saw like that and I worked in the healthcare industry and I saw different pieces of what the drug industry does. And I'm not anti-corporate by any means, right? I, 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 hey, hey, but I also know that in many cases, stuff like that happens. And I know that for every scientific study that shows that sugar's bad, that's funded by the corn industry in which I used to work, the sugar industry is funding seven studies saying sugar's great. And you look at vaccines, and I'm, I don't wanna pick on any one issue, but vaccines, right? I could find a whole bunch of stuff over here, I could find a bunch of stuff over here. I could find any issue, you pick any issue, right? There's gonna be studies 
on either side. You know, you're going to write a book and then Paul Krugman's going to write a book, right? It's a, how does someone with this amount of noise look at something and empower themselves? What is the process of, you brought up critical thinking. So for someone listening, and you know, the book was published by ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, right? And, and aimed at college students and high school students, but it, like, it was a very interesting book for me. So, uh, and in fact, that's great because most people need the high school level <laughs> to, to understand some of these issues. But when, when you're sitting there and, and average Joe or Jane, and you see information on both sides, three sides, five sides come at you on complicated issues. What advice do you have for that person to empower themselves to think critically? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the, first, the first step is to read what's in front of you with an open mind. And as much as I would encourage people to read our book with an open mind, I would encourage them to read Paul Krugman with an open mind. And and I think when when you've done that, you've done all the homework you possibly can, and you're still left with uncertainty. It's at that point that your humility that James was talking about should kick in, and you should recognize that I don't have enough information to be able to make me confident in imposing my will on my fellow man. Therefore, my default position should be just to stay where I am, let people do what they do until more information becomes available. Yeah, no, it's okay to be an interested observer in things that are happening around you. You don't have to weigh in with your own expert opinion on everything. Um, and, you know, look, Ant and I, we each have PhDs. We've studied a lot of things for a long time. There are certain issues that we don't even address because we feel incompetent to do so. Um, and I think you have to admit that no matter what you've studied or how long, it's probably the case that the, the majority of things in the world are going to be beyond you. And between us, we, we've studied politics and economics quite a lot. What do we never delve into? Well, uh, climate science, to pick one. We don't think that we know near enough to say anything about climate science. Now, we might talk about the politics of climate science, and we might talk about the economics of climate science. But what do we never talk about? Climate science. That's for climate scientists. And I take a rather agnostic view because I can see how they shift over time. Um, but tell me a discipline that doesn't shift over time as new information becomes available. And or I think, should, right? Or should shift. <laughs> sure. And I, I think you could be very reasonable about these things, right? We don't have to be team red and team blue shouting at each other. It's very easy to look at a complicated set of circumstances and say, all right, I, I don't really have the requisite knowledge to understand what's happening here. I'll do my best with it. Yeah. That, that's plenty good enough on most things, right? Plenty good enough. And yet we, de we devolve into the Fox versus MX MSNBC shtick real fast. That yeah. whenever some guy with the, my preferred team jersey says something, that's just simply true. And I have to back him all the way down the line. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. And I want to I want to stress a, num a, a word that you both have said, uh, humility. It takes humility to realize sometimes if you prove me wrong, I need to accept that. Right. Or or, you know, it, or because it, arrogance does not equal wisdom, despite some people may might think no matter how many times you say the same thing, it does not make you right <laughs> if you're wrong. Right. And I'll, I'll tell you that that for both of us. 
we have been not only wrong, but fantastically wrong in, in the past. Um, now, as you get older, you get more evidence before you and you're less wrong over time. But I, I would say that every position I hold right now is provisional. Some I'm much more sure of than others, but they're all provisional. And if something happens tomorrow to disprove one of my well-held beliefs, I, I would change my belief in a nanosecond. Yeah. Right. Because it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. And that there's a gulf between those two things. And, and by the way, for everyone watching, you can hear Anthony and James on a regular basis. Uh, how, is it weekly? Several it times a week on uh, the words and numbers podcast uh, is very entertaining and um, get the book cooperation and coercion, how busy bodies became busy bullies and what that means for economics and politics. And there's a variety of topics we won't get to today. You talk about gun control and it's all, it's, it's not the emotions. You go through data, you go through numbers, you go through facts. Um, and it's not a political book. It's not the red team, blue team type of book. And there is a lot of critical thinking. It asks you to think critically as you go through. Now, one piece that you write about in the book, which I love, our, our kids just, uh, just they go through this. There's a uh, Connor Boyack. I don't know if you know, Connor writes the Tuttle Twins books and it's for kids and, and they take the law by, you know, Bastiat or the, the Miraculous Pencil, which is I Pencil, which you, you write about in the book, which I love. And the old Milton Friedman video of him, I think he's in a courtroom, right? And he's got the pencil. And when you, I've been, I've been wanting to ask you this question. Uh, and it relates to an interview I did and, and current events. In February, I interviewed uh, Brigadier General, retired uh, Robert Spaulding. He's the former strategic planning director for the National Security Council and chief China strategist. And he wrote a book called Stealth War. And it's about China. And it's about various things that they are doing and undertaking, and some of which I think we're seeing now. Uh, certain pieces of that are... Uh, akin to, for instance, what Russia did in 2016. They know, and Facebook has proven that you can mess with the minds and the behavior and the mood and the whatever of the American public just by tinkering with their newsfeed, things like that, right? Human organ harvesting, those types of things. My question relates to iPencil and a, and a global uh, system of cooperation, but you throw into the middle of that a China. And, you know, principle wise, it's always, okay, listen, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You trade with these actors, they get better. How does an eye pencil fit with a country like China in which um, might be more like I'm trading with these people, these people, these people, oh, and the burglar and the robber, you, you throw them in the mix. And one where there is really no I've seen some libertarians argue, oh, it's a market economy. And they have, well, if you are, a, there are no private companies in China, as much as you say they are, they're, they are not you, but as much as people will say they are, they're, they are, and every citizen is a subject of the government. How do you reconcile iPencil with, uh, and I'm asking you this because I've thought about this, with a China, right? Versus like a Cuba. Um, I, I, principles are principles, but when you have someone who, repeatedly is kind of declared a war on us and, and, and others. I, I think one of the things that's important, and there are too many libertarians that get this wrong, is, is the idea that somehow um, being 
pro-market means that you could just do whatever you want. If, if, for example, China is using slave labor or somehow coerced people to produce a product that it's now selling in the United States for cheaper and everywhere else, I, as, a, as an individual, should be very concerned about buying that product. And as, as a moral agent, I would choose not to buy that, to choose some, buy something else instead. But notice there's a big difference between my making that decision and the government imposing that decision on me. It's, it's a moral question that the individual has to deal with, and that too is markets asserting themselves. It's the consumer base saying, no, we don't like the conditions under which this is being produced. Either you need to change it or we're gonna buy somewhere else. Heading further over to Kurt's angle on this, though, uh, you could imagine a case in which, uh, say, China, uh, and I just use the term China to cover everything that happens in in their borders. Um, China's developing uh, some cell phone technology, which offers some backdoor spyware that we're unaware of. Uh, you know, here's where you see that it it is likely very appropriate for government action. Right. Who's the target of the spyware? The, the government clearly is. They don't care about what we're doing. Um, is it appropriate to say, OK, we are free traders to our core. However, there are certain things that we're going to have to put a fence around and say no. Mm. And, you know, I don't know how you marshal the evidence for that sort of thing. I know that politicians often lie to get their their preferred policy outcomes to, to happen. But I can at least imagine circumstances in which government action against uh, certain types of trade, perfectly, perfectly uh, reasonable. I, I think it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, right. But I, but I, I can imagine it. But, but now, here yeah. again, and, and I, I don't I don't disagree with what James said, but again, you see the power of markets because uh, there was exactly that case of a Chinese company was producing electronic components that had backdoors built into them. I just bought a modem yesterday, and one of the things I did was go to this list, and someone had compiled it and said, okay, here are the modems that are manufactured in China that likely have backdoors. You want to stay away from them. And so I was able to adjust my behavior as a consumer. Yeah, and we talked about before I came on here that I've I've stopped using Zoom because I, as a consumer, am concerned about what's been happening from a privacy angle. And and you see they're rushing to, they're going out and they're saying, oh my gosh, we messed up, we did all this stuff, but they're going to be hurt in the market. Now, shrinking that way down from China to, there was a news story and, and someone shared it with me uh, this week and said, is this... Is this your vaunted capitalism? And it was some guy, I can't remember in a state, had bought up a whole bunch of N95 face masks and was selling them at an exorbitant rate or, or a rate that he thought he was going to get money. And the FBI raided him. And someone says, there's your capitalism, right? And my first response was, well, that's not capitalism. Is it capitalism? Is it not capitalism? And in a case like that, if you are that big of a, you know, a, a person in, that, that wants to do that, will the market respond? And, and what I told the person is I said, it's moot. The FBI just raided him, right? I mean, I mean, they just put him out of business. But if the FBI hadn't raided him, do you have to separate the emotion of not liking the dude with the fact that maybe no one's going to buy from him because they just don't like it? And, may, and maybe that's a pri the, the larger price gouging type of, uh, of, of, discussion, which is obviously relevant as well in a crisis. 
yeah, there's that. People might just say, look, I'm not willing to pay that price, and he's lost his shirt on it. Um, one of the things that people miss, even free marketers, is the value that speculators bring to the market. And that's what this guy is. You buy low, you sell high. What's happened is there's been some shock to the economic system such that the value of face masks is much higher than what's being reflected in the current price. The sooner we can get that information incorporated into prices, the more quickly people, both businesses and consumers, will respond. And that's one of the values that speculators bring to the market. They find information and they incorporate it into price quickly, which is what this guy has done. If he did it correctly, he'll make a nice profit, but in the process, be encouraging entrepreneurs to bring more to market, encouraging consumers to think twice about buying too much. If he's chosen wrongly, he loses his shirt, but that's the way it is with speculators. Mm. And Anthony and I uh, take a lot of pains not to use the word capitalism. Um, that seems to be a, a thing that requires def a, a defense. We don't really care about that. What we care about are free markets, where individuals can come together freely, unencumbered, and make a choice, each on a side of a deal that makes them each better off. Right? Everybody wins in the free market. That, that's really what we want to talk about. In a true, a true free market, not kind of the havesies, havesies we see uh, usually or, or worse. Right. So I'd like to, to finish off our interview here by scaring the hell out of everyone. And you end your book on this, right? And, and again, I urge everyone to get the book, Cooperation and Coercion. But you end the book, uh, well, not quite. You talk about cooperation, but debt, the issue of debt, which... I have always felt, or not always felt, I felt for a long time that was the most important issue facing the country. Uh, now, in my mind, I was thinking 20, 30 years in advance, you know, when we're 70 trillion or whatever in debt due to obligations and, and yada, yada, yada. That timetable may have been severely sped up over the past, just the past few weeks. And one thing that you write and you explain it, what I love about the book is you get down and you explain these things in human terms, right? To make it clear and you explain and provide context for big numbers. But one of the things you explain and you put it, you know, if you, if you're, if you're, you make 60 grand a year and you have 400,000 in debt and it's not just a 400,000, can you make the monthly payments in the U.S. basically can't. And you, you have a framework. Hey, we'd be okay if we kept spending at the same levels for five years and had and continued on 4% growth, which we were at before this whole thing happened. Well, that kind of went out the window this week, didn't it? Or this, well, this week, last month, whereby not only, I mean, they're predicting negative 28% growth for a while this year. And, and again, if we all, as you've written, as not in this book, but on Facebook and, and in your, your op-eds, right? If we go back to work, in two weeks or three weeks, people rehire, you get back. But once you go past May 1st and you go to June 1st, I mean, Andrew Cuomo's thrown out nine months and Tony Fauci's saying, we can't go back to work until we have no new cases, which would be interesting, right? Then you start, the structures start crumbling underneath. But let, let, let's not even focus on the structures crumbling. Even without that, if we went back to work today, We've put ourselves back from what you said in the book we have to do to hit the point of no return. So if we're, if, we're, if we're passing the point of no return, 
what does America look like in 20 or 30 years when we are belly up? Do we just print more money? Um, are we no longer a quote unquote superpower? Is a China or a, a, a Russia now in, you know, the head is someone else, uh, you know, where, do, what are we looking at here? I mean, it, it's scary. And I think people should be scared because it's a national security issue. It's an economic issue. It's a, a, a health issue. It's a lifestyle issue. Perhaps the most important there is. Yeah, this is one of the places where you know, James' warning is, is ringing in my head of how many times we've been wrong. So you just invited us to be wrong again. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll just, uh, off the top of my head, I would say something like this. In 30, 40 years, the U.S. looks fine. Um, the question is, what do we look like in 10, 15, 20 years? There's going to be a transition. And, and I suspect there are many ways this can play out. One way that, it, that I suspect it will play out is that the government will end up issuing a new currency and interestingly there was noise of that in this last stimulus bill there was a, a an amendment proposed that then was taken out subsequently from the final bill but the amendment was to um, begin investigating setting up a national cyber currency the digital dollar a digital dollar controlled something by like, controlled by the government not like a controlled by the government right but something like that will be the the gateway for for a massive inflation it'll be a one shot deal to monetize the 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 level of government spending i, I agree with Ant that in 40 50 years we're all fine here but that that medium term i mean i think we've got short term pain medium term uh, uncertainty and and long term we're pretty good in the medium term, if we have a, a real shock, a convulsion of the monetary system, the entire country could spin apart. And this is the thing that people don't really want to think about. They think the United States will always be exactly as it was as they experienced it. But world history should tell you that, that that's an unreasonable expectation, that things do, in fact, change and change significantly over time. Um, what is the thing that holds us together? And I go back to, to Chesterton, who, who came to America, and in a book, what I saw in America, he said the United States is the only nation on the face of the earth um, founded on a creed. Hmm. All right, that's right. All men are created equal is that creed. Do we believe it anymore? Hmm. Because to the extent that we accept and believe that, we have cohesion. To the extent that we don't, we have disunity. And if we move from a state of general political disunity to a state of monetary collapse. The, all the forces that hold the country together are now suspect. So we may end up with eight or 10 different kinds of countries, right? And I point people to the FEMA map as uh, an attempt to, to take geography into account when we're trying to figure out how to divide up the country. And those geographic divisions actually start to make a lot of sense if you look at it very carefully and you ask these sorts of questions. So I think we face an existential threat with, uh, with our debt problem as it now exists, but the existential threat is for the federal United States government. It's really not an existential threat for the people. Um, the productive capacity of the United States remains before, during, and after whatever is going to happen. Hmm. So unlike Europe, post-war Europe, we're in pretty good shape here. We've just been living well beyond our means for a long time, and we've been spinning more and more apart generationally. 
So how those two things come into focus later will determine what we're up against. Real quick, and, and by the way, everyone check out the book, Cooperation and Coercion. Uh, we didn't even get to scratch the surface, negative rights versus positive rights. We're, we're hitting on the overall theme because reading this book, you can apply any issue that you talk about to what's going on now in a sometimes more dangerous context or a, a, a more real-life context that, that's affecting us all now. One thing really quickly, and I know, James, you have to go here in a few minutes. We compare what we're doing now to behavior in other countries, like say a Sweden or South Korea. And people say, well, right, but those people are being responsible. And it requires people being responsible for that to happen. One thing I kept thinking about cooperation and coercion, if you create a society in which people aren't expected to be responsible on a regular basis, can you suddenly expect them to be responsible on a dime? Um, in terms of, listen, maybe it wasn't smart for all those kids to jump on, on top of each other on spring break. Again, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't smart, but they, they didn't do that in Sweden. And so people point to, well, because they were smart in Sweden, the government didn't have to come in. But it's fundamentally Sweden and South Korea, I've talked to people in both places, have different behaviors embedded in them. If you build coercion and a growing amount of coercion into a society, and people are used to being weaned uh, on a daily basis, if suddenly you ask them, be responsible on your own, does it not work that way? Is it, is it like taking an infant and saying, hey, find your way home? I'm going to drop you off here and find your way home? Yeah, that's that's about right. And I, I, as you're saying this, I'm remembering stories from my mother-in-law who grew up in, in um, World War II and then post-World War II Eastern Europe, <clears throat> who said um, after, after the generations under communism, something goes wrong, people's first reaction is not to fix it, but to ask who else is going to fix it, because that's the environment that they grew up in, that the government handles these things. Something to keep in mind with Sweden, Sweden, we think of Sweden as a country, which it is, but in our terms, it's a state. It's about the size of Pennsylvania, right? Population, economy, give or take, size, this kind of thing. And when you think of it that way, you and, and then you think about the United States, you realize the United States does not have a COVID problem. New York City does. That's where, whatever it is, 60% of the cases are. And the hospitals in the rest of the country are, are kind of just sitting around twiddling their thumbs. That, that's not to say that that couldn't change, but it is to say that that we're dealing with, we're trying to, to impose wall-to-wall -wall solutions on something that, at least at the moment, is not a wall-to-wall -wall problem. It's a specific problem in a specific place. Yeah, no, you start to look at places like South Dakota, and you wonder why a shelter-in-place order would ever be issued there. Mm -hmm. Right, it, Population density is such that that's just silly for South Dakotans. Um, it may make perfect sense in Manhattan, yeah. given, what, given what they're facing. Well, James, Anthony, I want to thank you. I know, James, you have a heart out. I want to thank you both for joining us. Listen, if you're watching, whether it's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and you catch this later or you didn't get your question in, I, we have a lot of, of comments over on the Facebook 
please throw your comments in here. I'll tag Anthony. I'll tag James. We can keep the conversation going. This is going to be on our podcast. We're going to cut this up, put it into news stories. So I want to thank you both for coming on today. And I want to thank everyone who joined in and joined this live conversation. Thank you, Anthony and James. Thank you. Bye-bye.